Jason? Yeah, give me a second. I always forget there's this like thing that covers the camera. Smart. So no one, no one can see you touching yourself to porn. <laughs> oh, Trisha, you came in at just the right moment. <laughs> this is my work laptop. My personal computer doesn't have a camera at all. That makes it really That's cool. even better for watching porn. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hi! And Jason in DC. Hello, happy new year. Happy Happy New Year to you both. How was New Year's? Um, in my pajamas, so. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I have little kids. It was a normal night. <laughs> I had to go to um, an engagement party on New Year's Eve, which is aggressive, right? Always Isn't that aggressive. That's it's aggressive. always aggressive when people put events on established party nights. I just, I was like, and I'm, it's happy to go. I like these people. It's, it, it, it was fun. I just, just felt a little aggressive. Like, oh well, what if? What if there was like a standing thing that I do on New Year's with like my family or maybe I visit a gravesite or something? Now I can't because I yep. have to, I don't know. I just thought that was aggressive. But I actually feel like a wedding would be more acceptable than like Absolutely not. No. I don't like I don't like weddings on those things either. I don't like weddings on Easter. I don't, I don't like weddings on established holidays. It's like I what? Don't like weddings on established holidays. The worst, the worst is a destination wedding <laughs> on a long weekend because they think that would help you come. But I'm like, no, I'm. That's exactly why I'm not coming. You think I'm going to spend my Memorial Day in Puerto Vallarta watching your ass get married? Oh, please, absolutely not. No, horrible. I feel like that's a nice convenience that they've thought about it. But no, it's extremely. You have the time off, and you know, I know, I get it, but it's, <laughs> it's extremely inconvenient to force a vacation on somebody. You are Larry David right now. You are Larry David. I'm so bitter about that. It's so funny. It's like a wedding is like a forced vacation. They're forcing a vacation on me. They're forcing a vacation on me. My friends got married and they did get married in Mexico. And so I was invited and and he was like, oh, did you book the hotel yet? And I went to the website and the hotel was like, it was like a resort. So it was like $550 a night. And the wedding thing was like four nights long. And then we had uh, to fly there. And I was like, okay, this is the amount of money I would spend on a vacation. But would I spend it on this weekend going to this place to do this thing? No, I'm going to be honest. Nope, I just wouldn't go. I didn't go. And so I went to Paris or something. <laughs> you still spent the money. You almost oh, spent the money. money. Like, I'm going to spend the exact <laughs> amount of money. But I'm going to spend it going somewhere else. <laughs> oh, I, I spent do- yeah. I do think destination wedding folks have to really be mindful about what that budget looks like. Once you say destination wedding, it's already a hardship on people, either for their money or their time. So there's no way you can make that easy unless the, des- unless the destination is my house. Then or unless great. they're paying for it, in which case it's a fabulous destination. In which case that is a great friend to have. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted I wanted to do this thing. So I listen to the Slate Political Podcast, and every year they do like the conundrum show where they ask each other would you rather questions. And I was like, that's oh, the one show I don't listen to every year. Well, guess what? You're about to be on it because I thought it'd be fun if we do some would you rather's. I'm just I just give people an idea, an insight 
into the way that we think. So I, I have a couple here and I, I want to hear what you guys have to say. So deal with Wait, it. We're, right we're doing this now? We're doing it right now. Oh my God. Right now. <laughs> yep. Sorry. I, you two were not, we did not talk about this. In the no, we did not. This was not on the Google doc. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, this, this one is really easy. Um, there's a correct answer. Would you rather lose all of your money and valuables or all the pictures you've ever taken? Pictures. Definitely the pictures. I am not shocked that Jason said that. Trisha, I'm shocked that you said that. I know. I know. I thought about it. But you know what? Money is a good thing. I can buy some more pictures. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can buy pictures of better looking people than your friends. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever doesn't live in my memory. Sorry, Alzheimer's. Um, we'll just have to deal. <laughs> I'm shocked because like, what was it? Yesterday you, you texted us. Pictures be like, oh, this is one of my favorite pictures. And you took pictures of, you took sh- shots of pictures hanging up in your room. Yep. I love pictures. You're right. I do. I love pictures. But And Jason, you just don't care about your kids when they were little. Just throw all that out. <laughs> Look, it was the would you rather. You can't conclude no, from that. I don't care. Show your math. Show your math. You know what my kids? You know what my kids need more than me having pictures of them is like food and like to go to school and get an education and go to the doctor. Like that is actually more important than me having pictures of them. So practical. All right. Okay. Next one. No, you didn't answer. Yeah, I don't answer these. I just ask them. (laughs) (laughs) Although I feel like it's implied with your tone here. Honestly, if you'd asked me this ten years ago, I would have. I'd have a different answer. But I would get rid of all my pictures today. But 10 years ago, it would have been getting rid of all your your things. I would have gotten all my shit. Um, All right, next one. Would you rather never use uh, social media sites or apps again? That includes, let's just say you'd never use the internet again or never watch another movie or TV show. Which one would you give up? Can I stay gainfully employed if I just watch movies? Like, can I can I can I make a living without the internet? Because I would definitely pick getting. That's I'd a be, question. I'd be happy to get rid of the internet as long as I can make a living. I, I'd actually. You don't even have to give me anything in return. I'd love to get rid of the internet. Well, you wouldn't. Well, okay. You may not be able to do what you do now if you need the internet. But if you couldn't use the internet or you just don't have it, would you rather that or never watch movies or TV again? I definitely take movies and TV over the internet. Trisha? I think definitely um, I keep the internet. Get rid of movies and TV. Oh, you two. Okay, now you two fight. Because what? I've succeeded in dropping TV for the most part. I mean, I might miss my, you know, my murder porns, but um, no. I mean, I've just recently gotten back into seeing movies, so I actually have succeeded in sort of putting movies on the side burners for a while. But I don't know. I mean, the connections that I have with people over the internet has been really um, a joy. I don't know if I want to give that up. It takes me all over the world. Meanwhile, Jason, you just you're just throwing the internet away. I, the internet, I, you know, I don't like social media. Like, I I think it would be better. It would be better off spending more time building relationships in person than virtual relationships. I, yeah, I'm not a fan. Okay, cool. and, the, and, the, and the Russians are taking, taking us over our minds. So that's what we're doing <laughs> that too. Oh, there is that. 
took a turn. Uh, yeah, too- a very dark turn. What's your answer? Internet or oh, I would I would scrap movies and TV. Like Trisha, like over the past even two years, the amount of TV that I watch has been reduced. And I'm not a big movie goer. I find myself on Wikipedia just reading the plots of movies and TV and going, oh, okay. <laughs> <You're horrible. laughs> There's too much to watch. It's the only way to it's the only way to do it. So that's my you, you read the cliffs notes of movies. Yeah, it's really bad. Especially when I hear about a child when it's, Western and it's four seasons in, I'm like, okay, and no one has time. So I just read it. Oh, that's the way. That's how I was with The Good Place. Everyone was like, watch The Good Place. I was like, I have a better idea. <laughs> brutally horrible. <laughs> okay, two more. Would you rather lose the ability to lie or believe everything you're told? Ugh. Lose the ability to lie. I cannot deal with the other. <laughs> I feel like the other you can manage, though. Just be a hermit. No, that's exactly right. It takes you out of it. I mean, both of them Both of them will have an impact on your social interactions. Definitely. <laughs> I'm fine with losing the ability to lie. I think that would make the world a better place. For who? I know. Not anyone you're in contact with. <laughs> <laughs> How does this look, Jason? Do I look great in this? I'm outside and I can't go back to change. Girl, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're you a mess. You're a hot mess. <laughs> How many friends would you have by the end of a week, do you think? Well, but ostensibly you would you would also share a lot of truth that we don't always share, right? Like every time I insulted someone, I'd have to then proactively say all the things <laughs> I like about them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think these. I love the assumption, Chris, that without the ability to lie, all your friends yeah. disappear. All I mean, relationships are built on lies. You know, not no, lies. No not lies. Reason. But I'll tell you something. I maintain all my relationships by, and we all do. Not it's not just a me thing. You just manage. You manage your relationships not with lies necessarily, but not with like boldface truths either. Like you, <laughs> you pick and choose what you tell people and when you tell them that. I don't know. Maybe the opposite of lying isn't necessarily running your mouth off saying everything that comes to your mind, which I think is what, thanks to liar, liar, that's what we think lying, the opposite of lying is. All right, last one. You know, it's funny you said, I was thinking that about when I saw the invention of lying. Did you see that with Ricky Gervais? Very funny movie, but it also like, as I watched it, I'm like, philosophically, like, they're not just not lying. They're like saying way too much. (laughs) Okay, last one. Would you rather live 20 years longer than you would otherwise, or go back in time 20 years to tell yourself 20 years ago what happens in the intervening time? Definitely 20 years longer. I have no desire to go and tell myself anything. That's like that. You don't do that. Like time travel, like that just messes everything up. Oh, you know what it'd mess up? Any debts that I have, I'll tell you that. I would go right back in time and I'd be like, you know, buy Apple stock. I don't know. Really? You wouldn't go back in time? I like I the idea of going back in time. Because first of all, there's a kind of like, I don't want to deal with being older. So, ugh. And then I like this notion of going back and doing a di- doing life differently. Just I, to see where you land. I don't know. 20, so, Jason, so if you were going to naturally die 89, you'd live to 109. And that's you, that's better than having insight over the past 20 years of your life? I'm just not comfortable Knowing the future that way. Fair. Wrong-headed, but fair.
<laughs> You're the only person that treats this as right answers, Chris. I, I love I, that. You're like, like, wrong. If you could go back in time and tell yourself, like, oh, you know, don't date this person or, you know, don't get on, you know, don't be in New York on 9-11 or, you know. Nah, not or, that or stuff. Are you doing that stuff? stuff? I mean, why not? I mean, I think people, <laughs> I think it might be helpful, you know, to some people. I don't know. I would, what would you tell yourself if you went back? I would go back and tell myself, you know, definitely some finance things. Definitely. And definitely people to avoid. I My life would have been really different. I don't know about that. I think I would just, it's so weird, huh? I didn't even think about it as like people. I thought about it more as like um, abilities and directions taken. What are you talking about? I don't. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like I would. I mean, I. I was saying to myself, I wasn't thinking about the people I had met or meet or someone I didn't want to meet or something like that. It was more like, well, you know, go back twenty years. You really should just. You know, you wanted to have a second language. You should go fully full hog on that. Do a second language. Travel abroad. Maybe immerse yourself in a different career path. You know, maybe you should do that PhD that you didn't think you should do. You know, something like that. Not miss, not necessarily um, interactions and in people. Because I don't know. I don't know which ones I'd drop out or any of that stuff. <laughs> Chris is like, I know exactly who I would drop out. I'm sure. But you know what? That's a testament. That's a testament to how much engagement you all have with people. I'm pretty good about not engaging with too many people that I don't want to. <laughs> you're, you're a harsh critic. I'm a harsh critic. You are. You're a harsh critic of people. You, you're, your gatekeeping of people in your life is pretty extraordinary. It's like one at, single file, please, one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I, like, I like to say I add like one new friend every couple of years. I want to do one last one and then we'll move on. How are you supposed to end this? This is a dumb one to end on. Would you rather have a billion dollars to your name or spend $1,000 for each hungry and homeless person? Oh. I'll do the billion dollars and figure oh, out how to help them. Yeah, I, th- I think I would too. What do you? No, I would do the second one. The second one is weird. What What are people going to do with a thousand dollars? That's yeah. like a thousand dollar bonus. It's eh. a band aid. <laughs> See, that helps you out, right? We both get we get a billion dollars, and we get to try to solve the problem too. <laughs> what can fucking do with a billion dollars? I wouldn't know what to do with a hundred. I know what to do with a hundred thousand. Exactly. I wouldn't know what to do with like ten million dollars. I don't know what I would do with myself. Oh, uh, I do. <laughs> I know exactly. This is a problem I would like to solve. So bring this, this problem like I have so you can be like, oh no, I have so much money. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Oh boy. Okay, so let's jump in some topics. Jason, take us there. So about 20 years ago, I read the book Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. Fascinating book. I definitely recommend it. There's a concept in there, which I found very provocative and interesting to read about, but one that I definitely was like, no, I don't agree with this, which is we're not going to be able to stop employers from discriminating on the basis of race. And he, he just gives all this kind of information about economics and race nepotists and how even people who aren't overtly racist, who aren't trying to discriminate, they're going to end up hiring people that look like them. That's just going to happen. And so what he proposed was that basically you get taxed. You have like a 3% you know, penalty or tax. It's basically like the government says, we know that you're going to uh, discriminate. And so 
we're going to take 3% of your revenue or profit or whatever. And then that money is going to go into a fund that's going to be invested in black businesses, black education, you know, scholarships, things like that. And, and so, as I was saying for the past, you know, 20 years, I would think about this and like, Oh, it's like really pessimistic. And, you know, I really believe that eventually we can, you know, get rid of race discrimination, even when it's unconscious or whatever. And I have to say now, for the first time, I am starting to think that initial kind of hypothesis like might be right. Like it's hard for me to see. I feel like I feel like the gap is so wide. It's hard for me to see how we ever achieve race equity by trying to enforce uh, non-discrimination uh, laws and rules and policies. What has shifted your thinking? What what in the current society has said, you know what, maybe. I, I look at the, you know, the wealth gap is so wide. It's not narrowed much. You know, I look at education. I think arguably black kids in this country get as bad an education or worse than they ever have in this country. I just don't see a path to race equity. Another way to look at what he was saying, I think, is we have a system that allows for social mobility. The problem has simply been you know, not a level playing field. It's just been that black people haven't had access um, to the system, but the system inherently, you know, does allow for mobility. And so we just have to outlaw discrimination and enforce that. And then we get to an equal playing field. And I just, I don't see that. I, I, you know, in my lifetime, I don't see that that has, that has become, I don't feel like we've made adequate progress to prove that theory. Um, And, you know, you look at like, reconstruction there was like this sudden improvement in the lot of african americans and then it went down again you know the whole kind of cyclical nature all of that i i just don't see the path what i like about this notion it feels like it feels like what we do when we put when we like tax pleasure goods like mm. we acknowledge that people are going to smoke people are going to um drink alcohol and then we simply take a little bit of um you know like your cigarette gets taxed um, and then we put that in a pool and do th- certain things with it, right? For some folks, it was always about sort of like, um, you know, health prevention I- initiatives, right? I kind of like the idea that we are not sort of crafting policy around the expectation that people be better. But instead, we're actually looking at how the system works and simply responding to that. Like in a weird way, it's like it acknowledges the systemic nature of what's wrong. Whereas I feel like other initiatives have been pushing for a kind of heart change, which would then be reflected in how people moved around and and created their work. Now, this is, hold on. The reason why I think about this is I was having a conversation with a colleague about this, um, you know, about. Uh, you know, we think one of the things that I focus on right now is how do we help people use technology better? And one of the weird things is that I went to a conference exploring that topic and it was so amazing what was sort of caked in and built into sort of the educational system. And I was like, I don't know if I can fundamentally shift people's perceptions when certain things are baked in. And I think that that this approach acknowledges that inequality is built into the system and we're just responding to it in a proactive way. Once you arrive there, what's next? Once you arrive there, there's a kind of freedom to it. There's this pooling of there's this there's this money that you then have access to. Then you can tap you. Then you can 
tap into what's going to potentially increase educational access for young people. So if this pool of money exists, then you can then divert those funds into proactive activities as opposed to a kind of, I don't know, sometimes I feel like there's a kind of wish fulfillment, you know? A kind of stopgap thing. So you're saying like this, then we can finally focus on systemic systemic um, solutions rather than stopgap ones. I actually think about this now. Think about this in terms of like climate change, right? We're having all these conversations and agreements about it and just all this kind of stuff. But like, what if you did do like a carbon tax and then you just did you use that money and resource to do to attack the problem? I don't have I mean, to that's the theory of like cap and trade, right? Like- right. I don't have to change your mind. But since you're going to do this anyway... <laughs> Why don't I do something with the resources? Now that that is weird because I think there is a kind of assumption, maybe even the way Jason framed the question, there's an assumption in there that it's pessimistic. That's I, yeah, I think that's what I'm responding to. Like it just sounded in you presenting it, Jason, just sounded so hopeless that I checked out, you know, and I was like, oh God, if this is where we if this is where it is, if it's like, oh, there's nothing we can do, then what's next? What do we do? Do we line up and jump off a bridge or like <laughs> No, but this is, I think, a propo- this is a policy solution. This is, yep. this is saying. I mean, I, 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 I saw it as pe- pessimistic originally, but I think what I'm saying now is that I don't know that it's pessimistic. I mean, I think you know people do what's in their what they perceive to be in their self interest. If, if someone perceives it's going to be more my interest to hire this person versus that, I, I just think, feel like we see those trade offs all the time, where. Even, I mean, this is the plight of like, not the plight, but this is the problem with like white liberals, right? Is that, you know, they slash we may talk a good game, but at a certain point, like when it's this or that, you know, you're always going to choose yourself or your family or your friends over the greater good. Like that's just how we're wired. I, I don't, I mean, probably used to judge that, but I actually think that's just the way it is. And so from a policy perspective, I think Bell may have been right. Like it may be unrealistic. Like as Trisha said, that we're going to change people's minds. And if we don't change their minds, then it's not going to change. We've got to put something else in place. And again, I don't think it's not jumping off a bridge because it's saying, no, let's actually be strategic about resources and let's make sure we're lining up the resources for, to build, you know, kind of a, let's say a black economic infrastructure because the notion that, gradually or eventually blacks are going to have equal access to the general economic infrastructure is just it, to me, it seems clear. Like it's just not the case, but this is why I experienced this as depressing. I agree. I think he's right. I think that it would be great if we stop thinking about, Oh, we need to change people's hearts and minds and everyone will come around to system change. Like we have to start with system change. The thing is, is that like, there are so many reasons why we're not going to get, race equity here. And some of them have to do with our systems and some of them have to do with people's beliefs. And those two things kind of intertwine. I I don't know. I I find, I think it's, it's difficult for me to untwine those two things because you said, Jason, like it's just baked into us that we'll take care of us and people who look like us. And I, you can find instances for that all throughout history and I get it. But sometimes because I'm a hippie, I think, you know, is it the systems that create that for us, which is why we resort to that. Is that because like from when we are born, all the way up until we die, we are um, brought up with this idea, even in, in these times, we're about this idea of um, resource scarcity. 
and that, you know, what's mine is mine and not yours and et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know. I got lost in my thought here, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that, yes, if we change the system, we might end up changing people's hearts and minds. It's sort of, it's almost like a continuum. I think it makes sense, but I think we probably should un- unpack that a little bit. Structural problems deserve structural solutions. And I think in a weird way, that is actually the most basic approach to this issue. But it, this is- it takes the feelings entirely out of it. It really does. I was saying right. though, the reason why we're not going to have structural solutions are the same reasons why we, there's reasons why we're not going to develop them is the reason why we haven't developed them. No, but no, but no, but the reason why we haven't developed them is in many ways, like, especially when you talk to people about racism and this, the systemic nature of racism, people, people don't feel comfortable with that because we've actually intertwined this notion of like racist feeling with racism as a structural problem. And I think in some ways, it, it's best if we if we disentangle those two things. I don't care what's in your hearts and mind. Let me make a really clear distinction about where we're headed as a group of people if a large subsection of your population aren't able to access the resources of your system. I don't care if you don't like them. In a strange way, you can even make that same case about this, this sort of immigrant conversation that's happening. They're here. They must have access to resources. Map it out. Think about it now. Map it out t- 20 years from now if you deny these folks access to resources within your country. What does that country look like? It doesn't matter what you think or how you feel about them or any of that. Let's just, let's just look at that as a sort of bare bones issue. And that's why I find this, this a sort of a more reasonable approach because it actually deals with structure. It doesn't ask about what you feel inside or any of those kinds of things, because that's besides the point. What mm-hmm. it asks you is to think about what kind of society do you want to have? What do you, what, what, to envision sort of like what the education system is going to look like? All of these kinds of questions bear out regardless of whether you care about those people as human beings or any of that. All of those things aside. It feels like asking of people as much as we would ask them to change their hearts and minds. And I, maybe my imagination's limited. But actually, this thing, the structural change sounds even harder. Well, well, I think you're raising the practical question, Chris. I think it's a good question, like whether it's achievable um, practically or politically. And that, that I don't know the answer to that. I think, I mean, what you were, you, where you were going, Trisha, is I agree with, like, you'd want to lay out the rational argument of how it's in everyone's interest for everyone to have this access. But I will say, I don't think people... Um, that rational argument has not worked very well. Like, and I think as a society, not just on the issue of race, although certainly on that issue, like we're just not great at making decisions based on long-term policy implications over and over again, we will always choose the short-term comfort. So I I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, Chris, in terms of like achievability, I think you're right. Like, I don't know how to get there, but maybe the main point of what I'm raising is like, I think I've got, I've become jaded about the possibility of just like, this kind of gradual equal playing field approach. Well, that was never going to happen. But I think, I think the question is, I I think, I think the big piece though, that you're missing is that there was never an equal playing field built in. The structure of it is like, it's to permit one or two in. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I mean when I say it's caked in, right? It's caked in for individuals to succeed, but groups of people, I think it's much harder 
So I, I think this is a kind of like an explicit admission of how the system works. And I actually think it, at the base of it, I think you can come back to self-interest. I think we've just done a really poor job of pitching the self-interest aspect of it. Because now I think to myself, when people talk about, well, it'll be nice to have a good educational system. Who cares? Like we were jokingly saying, who cares about the education system? Guess what? You're now turning 60 years old and yeah. you now have to wonder about the people who are going to be taking care of you. Yeah. How well educated were they? Do you know what I mean? It's like the connections begin to start to, I think those are the kinds of connections and the interconnectivity that we haven't been really explicit about. Like, I think there was a news story early in the year about uh, like a medical clinic that they have to send out a letter to a lot of their clients that they might have been exposed to HIV and a, a couple of other diseases, simply because the clinic wasn't up to snuff in terms of how it was going about its business. That is just an explicit declaration of how interconnected we are, right? Like you wouldn't sit around thinking about this. You're going about your business. You're hoping that the business, you're hoping that the clinic is is being properly um, evaluated. But guess what? Their lack of clean equipment is now coming back to bite you in the ass. So you know what I mean? So it's like our interconnectedness mm -hmm. and the fact that we're part of a web where resources need to be properly distributed so that we can sort of police the system itself. I don't know. I like, I just, it suddenly struck me. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at those poor people. Thousands of people are going to get that letter. And they were just going about their lives. And it didn't feel like it mattered whether <laughs> there was a supervisor making sure that people were cleaning equipment, but suddenly it does. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just weird. So I just think that sometimes we can boil things down to self-interest. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that explicitly. I don't think so either. I know. Look at your face. It, it takes the romance out of it, Chris. Not <laughs> set up a particular stage. Like if everything is presented in those terms, like hey, everybody, low um, minimum, higher minimum wage is in everyone's best interest, but not just everyone's, yours in particular, and that's sure. where you should start every conversation. How do you benefit? They already think it. But isn't that continuing? Uh, uh, isn't that continuing? But that's how that maybe we want to get away from if at the end of the day, the, the real punch is that we want people to care about each other. But you do well, care about each other by extension. You do. It's just that what I'm telling you is that you're connected to each other. It actually enforces our connection instead of creates distance. I mean, I feel like what you're proposing, Chris, is the concept behind like homo sovieticus. The Soviet philosophy early on was like creating a new human being, homo sovieticus, which is what you're saying, like someone who thinks about the common good above above mm -hmm. self-interest. And I think it's a great ideal. I think the challenge is like, I really think, and this, I, again, I agree with Trisha, this is not a negative. I mean, this is how we survive. Like we as organisms, like we are hardwired to pursue what we perceive to be in our interest of us surviving and us like, you know, our lineage or whatever surviving. Like that's, and, and, I I think there is a way to do both. Like I I feel like for a lot of my life I believe like in what you're saying, Chris. Like we should be able to put the common good as the primary. But I think um I guess I'm got I've got no point where I agree with Trisha that you you have to do both, and it has to start with the self interest because again, like that we're all we're all wired to pursue like our self interest. Well, you know, it's so interesting you brought this up because I was thinking about this the other day about um like the white women voting block. 
And how it's going to come back to white women. I mean, no, it's, you know, but you know, I, I actually, it, it, I've actually sort of moved away from kind of this sort of weird dismissal of it because it's kind of this notion that white women are not, are not voting in their best interests. But I actually think that's actually what they're doing. And, you know, um, because they're adjacent to power. So that's in their best interest to buttress that, right? Mm -hmm. so whenever people talk about, um, you know, vote like black women, and there's a sense that black women are saving us all. Well, we're voting with our best interest in mind. It just so happens that because we are so vulnerable, if we are thriving in the system that we're creating, then you, by extension, are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. because we have less access to power. So in some ways, both groups are voting for their best interests. It's just their parameters look different because of their how close they are to power or not. Do you see what I mean? So I'm not as dismissive of sort of this idea that white women are not voting in their best interests. I think when they look coldly at the situation, they actually are. Well, I think, although this is a different conversation, I do think there's a conversation to be had about perceived self-interest versus actual self-interest. And I'm always brought back to sure, the, the sure. video that Bill Maher had shown on his show where they went to Mississippi. I think this was during Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. And they were interviewing these poor white people yep. who were on welfare, yep. who were talking about how they, they wanted a smaller government and less welfare. And they, they directly asked this guy, wait, you're on welfare? Like, how would... How, what do you mean? Like you're going to vote for Republicans to reduce welfare. And he was just like, well, I think that's what's better. I mean, it, and so I, I think there is a gap sometimes between the two, but I, but I think you make a good point. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think I come back to Jason's initial point, which is like, we make a real connection between what has actually happened within the system, not what people think in their head or any of those kinds of, because part of the, part of the disconnect for those folks around small government is that they've been taught to believe a certain kind of thing about what's called small government means. And sometimes it's not actually centered in even understanding how government plays a part in their lives, yeah. which a lot of people are actually beginning to understand um, in the government shutdown. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, wait, wait a minute. They're seeing their connections to the thing that they have been taught to despise, partially because that, that connection has never been made really explicit to people. Right. And so in a kind of strange way, Derek Bell's proposal is actually kind of an invitation for people to sort of see how these systems are in play with each other. This is very much the conversation of the moment, right? Black Lives Matter, um, Occupy Wall Street, it's the space that they inhabit, right? These systems are oppressing people. Yeah. It's not individual bankers who are greedy. It's not individual cops who are racist. There's an entire system that is doing right. these things, right? So I think Derek Bell, in, in writing that all, the, all those years ago, I won't even say it was prescient because it was probably of his time too. It's always been the thing <laughs> since right after the Civil War, like structures were created to make sure that inequity was a thing. Um, before, after Civil War, I mean, literally before the Civil War, when some people weren't even human people. So I, I don't know. I I find what he's proposing to be, dare I say, obvious. But is it? Because there's a part of you that resists it. I I resist it only because you know me. My next question is, okay, so what do we do, right? Yeah. And then knowing me, I'm like, well, let's tear everything down and start over. So, <laughs> but you know what? He, he also is a <laughs> But he offers a mechanism that's actually doable. Do you know what I mean? Like, because we have that in practice. 
it's actually not something that we are unused to doing. Why aren't we doing it? I think because we, I think. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what your answer is. The thing is that we're not doing it. Right. So again, like. Well, because these ideas. You let go to the practical altar. The fact that we're not doing this thing. Um, I, I don't know. I just, is it worth discussing if there's nothing you can do about it? We have funds. We have funds all the time. It's just the question of it's how does an idea rise to policy levels? And I think there were probably some people who balked initially at, at how it would be put in place practically and what would it say about um, what we thought about the possibilities in this country if we were to go down that road. But I don't know. There's also, can I just say the personal? I feel like, does this make you sad, Jason? It feels like the recognition of this makes you sad. Jason, why don't you take the last word on this? Talk about that. Yeah, no, I don't think it makes me sad, actually. I think it opens up more thinking. I mean, I, I kind of like where we're ending in the sense that it seems like we're kind of on the same page about the, the current thinking, like it's not is not working, has not worked for a long time. I think we need to think differently and we need to be willing to question some of our, I'll use the term like liberal humanist assumptions um, or biases. We need to, we need to be willing to question those and kind of stare the problems in the face and think differently. I I think Chris, your point is very well taken. Like we don't know exactly what it looks like in terms of what's achievable from a policy perspective or how to achieve it. But I think it starts with, with again, being willing to, to really look at ourselves differently and how, how we function as individuals, how we function as a society and, and just be willing to question everything. I think I, you know, honestly, probably some of it for me is like white guilt. Like what? Like we can't have a color, you know, a society where, you know, race is just a a non-factor. And like, we, we need to be willing to confront like the, I think the reality of, of the structures of our society. Well, I, I'm ready to burn it all down. You guys. (laughs) <laughs> i've been saying that forever let's just start over constitution 2.0 i'm in oh i'm for that i, I have, i'm definitely for a new constitution can i just say last thing and well this isn't connected to this so this is like a non-sequitur segue but like after world war ii after all those countries were devastated we america went to other countries like japan and the european powers and helped them write new constitutions Meanwhile, we're holding on to this piece of shit for like the <laughs> longest time. So like like the like the uh, Japanese constitution has all sorts of very modern language about modern things in it, but we're worried about fucking musket balls. I, anyway, that that always frustrates me that everyone's like, well, there's nothing we can do. I was like, well, we literally did it for other countries. So I don't know. What well, you know, the I this is probably a little non-sequitur, but I wanted to bring it up before I forgot. And Jason, um, your non-sequitur is next. So get ready. <laughs> so Jason, um, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was a New York Times piece. I haven't had a chance to read it fully, and I will, about how um, the New York Times apologized in the opinion section for the part it played in um, in sort of um, escalating the arguments around um, Crack Baby. Crack babies? No, okay. I did not see that. That's and so, what's crazy. interesting about it is, um, is that this remind this conversation reminded me about sort of prevailing assumptions that people make and how you can use bad science to just buttress your prejudice. And so, when we when you introduce the topic, this really reminded me that part of why we sometimes are resistant to policy things is because of the 
of what we think it says about us as a society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yep. instead of so anyway, so it just that article reminded me because apparently the New York Times now recognizes that they basically basically spent a lot of time writing articles telling people that the crack baby phenomenon was a bigger deal than it actually was and basically villainizing parents and all kinds of stuff. So they issued an apology yesterday or so about it. That's interesting. Good for you, New York Times, which is not something I say often. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as soon as they did it, as soon as they did it, everybody's like, well, can they admit the fact that they also helped get Trump elected by focusing on the the list of things they'd have to admit? That's why people don't apologize, by the way, because the list of people lining up for apologies then begins to extend. So, (laughs) Um, anyway. So let's move into the next topic. So last month, Darren Chris, who um, was famous for Glee and also sleeping with producers for parts, uh, that last part is gossip, but. <laughs> oh my God, you can't introduce them both equally. Ah. <laughs> well, one led to the other, but again, that's just gossip. Don't, please don't tag uh, Oh my goodness. Um, anyway. What a um, sign of the times. I'm hearing. I, can't, I don't know if it's true, but I'm hearing. I know. Sources report. Sources close to Darren Chris. In any case, Darren Chris had announced last month that he will no longer take LGBTQ roles, that he doesn't want to play LGBTQ characters because he wants to leave that space open for a queer artist to step in. Which that, does that mean he does not identify as a queer artist? Is that what's I mean that? not publicly? <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> So when I heard that, I, I neither applauded nor raised my eyebrows. It it just got me thinking like, okay, well, you're an actor. And have we in this moment arrived at the space where now only Jews can play Jews, where only gay people can play queer characters, where only Americans can play Americans? And I don't know how to ask the question without sounding, without directing it. But it just my question to you too. Is this where we are when it comes to appropriation? Um, what kind of conversation can we have around it? Now, I do want to note that we had this conversation almost two years ago, exactly two years ago, after George Michael died, when we talked about appropriation in music um, and the way that it could be done. And I just, I, I want to try to broaden that conversation to all entertainment and culture. Like, where are we at on appropriation? And what does appropriation look like? And dare I say, can it go too far? And and far in trying to correct for it. What do you think? Jason, go. Well, I, I have various thoughts on this. The first thing I'd like to say, I think you both know now my affinity for quotas. You know, to me, what would be best is just proportionality. And I like I don't think we have proportionality. I think we know that there are certain kinds of people who are much who are very much overrepresented in terms of, you know. Uh, roles that they get and characters that are portrayed and that kind of thing. So I'd like to see more proportionality. And if that's done through quotas, that's great. But, but that's, that's where I think we should be. That's my humble opinion. I wondered if the word appropriation was the right thing to use in this space. I, Cause I think that might get it a bit confused, right? I struggle with this a lot because I, I I've seen, you know, trans actors say they want um, only trans actors playing trans parts and then I, I and there's a part of me that balks at it only because I don't want trans actors to be sort of limited in what they can play. You know, that's also the part of it that I think gets forgotten in that conversation is like 
obviously there's a push for trans actors and there's a push for African-American actors. All the rate, the, the, the sea of people who are sort of underrepresented. And as somebody who has a sibling that's an actor, I obviously really want her to play um, what she wants to play. But then there's, there is a thing with them where they really want to play lots of things on screen. That's part of the power and the attraction of the arts is this belief that they should be able to play whatever they want on screen. I mean, the verb that we use is literally play. Yeah. Like you, you want know. to play, like I, I want to play. So, you know, and so I don't know where I fall on this sort of identity question. I think in the end, I collapse on the job of the writer, that it's the job of the storyteller to write the roles in such a way that you're filling up the world with people that really exist so that the actors themselves don't have to sit around and make that claim. Like I only want this part. That's you two know? different things, Trisha. So there's there's two things. You're you're presenting one thing is that um, when when it comes to representation, yeah, we want and this is separate, right? We want the world on in our media to look like the world that we live in. That's one thing. The yeah. other thing is that we want some sort of a similitude, a sim- Jesus, or similitude, yeah, similitude. Yeah. when it mm-hmm. comes to uh, the actors playing those roles. Those are really separate things because but one's I- saying that we don't want just, we just don't want straight white people in media. Great. The other one's saying that whenever those roles are created, right, we only want people who can fit that. And I think that becomes super problematic for people like Nicole Kidman. She'd never work again, right? Because if you're saying, <laughs> if you say that American is an identity that we want Americans playing Americans, then like when it comes to like British and Australian people, like can they only play those roles? Like, are they limited to that? Like if, if Sandra Bullock has to dye her hair blonde, does that make sense? You know what I mean? Well, no, I mean, I think, well, listen, there are a couple of things melding, right? There's opportunity and access, which is why you have Darren Chris make this claim because he's aware that his fame makes him the natural person to choose if he has to go up for a part because, and because we know in order for a movies or anything or any sort of entertainment form to kind of hit its peak, there's some sort of name recognition. We, we recognize all of those things are playing into it, right? There's out, there is that element on um, there, but at the same time, I know, I feel like we've gotten a little bit trapped though. I feel like, I feel like maybe it's, I think I've gotten trapped in the in the problem. What do you mean? Because there's an economic motive to using Darren Chris. He's well recognized, blah blah blah. Sure. But the only reason why he's well recognized is because he was given an opportunity that maybe somebody else wasn't given. Yeah, nothing makes money like money. And so the, there are constraints on it. Okay, so now I landed where Jason landed. You start Wait. with quotas until the system has gotten to a place where you don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you can you give me that point of view again without using the word quotas? It's very triggering for me. So I, what do you mean? <laughs> okay, okay. So can, I think what we can say is you asked the question, is this where we are? Yeah. I think what we can say is we are at a moment where we are fully ready to recognize that we have limited the access to opportunities for a wide range of people. And we now have to offer a corrective. And this is the corrective. It is not an ideal situation, 
because you're right, some people will lose out. But to make the future better, we might have to walk down this road. Well, I would say, so I'd see this in two ways. On the one hand, Chris, to your question about whether, you know, we should be limiting who can play a part to people who reflect that background in their personal life. You know, I think no to that. I mean, I'd like, I, I think, again, if done equitably, we should be open to people playing all manner of roles. When I bring up quotas, I'm talking about, because this is where you get into the equity, I want to make sure that there's proportionality in which actors, which uh, different backgrounds are represented in casts. That doesn't mean, like, I'm not saying, you know, there should be X percent of Black actors and they should all be playing characters who were written as black. I don't think that necessarily, but I do think we need to make sure there are, you know, there's a proportionate amount of trans actors and black actors and Asian actors, et cetera. I mean, the perfect proof of the proof in the pudding, Hamilton. Um, That Hamilton's not that you can just drop into a conversation and walk away. Can you (laughs) (laughs) conversation (laughs) over? So wrap it up and go to recommendations because Hamilton. No, but you know, the thing that's, I mean, we talk, my friends and I talk about how robust those roles are for those actors and how that was, that's a rarity because what happens when you put a black character or black actor in these, in certain roles in the past is that it's so limited. Do you know, they don't get to have full lives on screen or on stage sometimes, but by actually placing black actors in parts that could theoretically be fulfilled by white people, they got to have the full range of their experiences as actors. So weird. So, okay. So returning to the original question I had, um, I, I enjoy a line, right? Where yeah. is the line? Cause on one, on one level, when Darren Chris said that I was kind of like, Oh, okay. Well, stay in your lane. Like you've, he's played like two or three gay characters now, mm-hmm. like high profile ones. Like, okay, stay in your, that's cool. But then I was like, I don't know if I want everyone staying in their lane. Because especially for very small marginalized groups like trans actors, like they can only play trans people. That's just so fucking limited and unnecessary. So like, where's the line where we want, we definitely want more representation uh, on screen and all over the place. That's one thing. That's other second thing though, I find is more difficult to parse. Well, I think it's, it's unfortunate that, in order to give more opportunity to LGBTQ actors, he feels like he needs to open up those particular roles. I think that's what you're getting at. And that is very two or three roles that he's had, right? Yeah. I've had two roles. So now <laughs> have at it, gays. <laughs> but, but I still think it's admirable that he did, like he's recognizing it's, I don't know anything about it, but it sounds like he's recognizing that unfortunately that is the case. And he is trying to open up space for other people to get roles who aren't normally getting them. But I still agree with your point, Chris, that why should it have to be, we need to open up those roles, you know, for actors who have that background to, to play. They, they, they can play any background. I, I agree with you there. Alternatively, he is rejecting those roles because they have limited him and he wants access to playing straight guys on screen because I, they get to do more as well. So that's also the flip side of that equation well. In, in discussing self-interest, I was mm-hmm. like, you know, the other part about this is that a lot of people experience Darren Chris as a big gay guy because that's what we've seen him do. 
Yep. And I wonder if perhaps him or his people are like, uh, you have this gay thing around you and we need to break out of it and maybe we should do it in a really public way. And this but, is the most generous way to do yeah. it. It's you know what's generous way. I don't want to be so cynical, but I mean, it's Hollywood. You know what? Let me ask this question. Maybe this is obvious, but I haven't really thought about it before. I, I feel like I can definitely think of examples of women who are out, who get roles as heterosexual women, but who are, who identify as queer or gay or lesbian. Right. Well, she's out now. Isn't she? Well, okay. But even if she's yeah. not like, should I have said anything? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think things are. She's super gay. Anyway, no, but you know, there's like Portia de Rossi and um, yeah, um, Amanda Stenberg now. Um, but do we see that with men, or do we not allow gay men to portray? Wasn't that the whole thing back in the day in Hollywood? Like, you have to keep your gay stuff under wraps, or you'll never work again. And that's now that I'm thinking about it, like that is still the case. I mean, I think I think Rupert Everett might say that is the case. Because I think he's very out, and I think that's been an issue for him. Maybe less so for like um, stage actors like Ian McKellen. I do, you know. I mean, see, this is the thing though. There's also a part of me, and actually, has become increasingly the case as I've gotten older that I don't want to know your personal. Yeah. Because actually, sometimes it really interrupts the flow when you're portraying a character on screen, which is why I actually resist the idea of anyone being anything in the real world and then having to translate that on screen. You're Tell playing that to Us character. Weekly, Trisha. Tell it to all the yeah, readers of Us Weekly. Industry that will argue with you. But it's not Us Weekly, Jason, because d- despite, despite their breaking news bullshit, Us Weekly and all those tabloids are all in cahoots with the star's people. Like Those, sure. those stories are created by everybody. Yeah. You sure. know what, What's really getting to what Trisha's saying is it's social media. Yeah. You know, having access to these people and them now their real lives are yeah. part of their advertising for their brand. I hate it. We're, we are so inundated with information about people that, like Trisha said, like maybe we shouldn't have this much information I, I about agree. you. It just interrupts your job. Yeah, I, I, I've actually had that happen. You've seen it, right? You're watching a movie, but it's like the person is too present in the movie. Daniel D. Lewis is one of the few people I think that disappears. I think Gary Oldman, yeah, um, Forrest Whitaker, couple, yeah, Forrest yeah. Whitaker. There's a couple of those you don't know who the fuck they are. They're yeah. gonna be, but you know, if sometimes those three men walked in here right now. I wouldn't be certain it was them. To be honest <laughs> exactly. <with you. laughs> and so I, I think that there's a tension there. I mean, I think what we what we've stumbled on is 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 exactly what we always stumble on, which is that there are these systemic inequities that necessitates us making these claims like the Darren Chris claim, but then it also really gets in the way of the damn art, which goes to show you that inequalities and all kinds of ism is a pain in the ass because realistically, why can't a trans actor play a part on a screen? If the part's written well and the actor is able to disappear into the role, which is the, which is the job of the actor, yes. Then why do I have to worry about it? But I get it because it's very visual. You know, they're visual cues about things and all of that stuff. But you're it's just- an actor. I mean, you're wearing tons of makeup. I know, right? I, all actors are, are trans to some yeah. extent. <laughs> You've seen Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. You think those people don't look like that? You know, <laughs> that white guy isn't really an elf with long hair. Like, 
that happen. So. But we've had conversations where people are upset about the possibility of people of color playing yeah. fictionalized folks in the world. But that's that's okay. That's where we land. Is that the same thing we're talking about, though? Kind of, because think about it. That is the ultimate freedom. So if a part, is, like. I mean, obviously, I just watched Trevor Noah's bit about James Bond and why Idris Alba can't actually play James Bond, which I highly recommend. It's really great. Oh, wow. You talked about that on this podcast a couple of years ago, Tristan. I remember that. Right? I talked, But, you know, he's like, listen, the whole point of James Bond is you've got to be able to blend into a, a whole environment and then you have to say, hi, this is James Bond. But Idris Alba running around in Scotland, no blending. <laughs> <laughs> The misogyny is built in to James Bond. Do you want interest as that? No. <laughs> Craft a new narrative. Anyway, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's the tension. We're always dealing with that tension between what we want um, in the reality of a thing versus these, like, very economic and real practical constraints in the world because people don't have equal access. I feel very strongly about white people playing black people on screen or white people playing Latino people on screen. Sure. Um, Then like in the mid level for me is like straight people playing gay people and gay people playing straight people. I just kind of don't care. Right. And then there's like the extreme don't care, but it still riles people up like Brits playing Americans or yeah. redheads playing blondes, or and I know that sounds like really like I'm a, a building a straw man, but no, like that's important. I remember when um, what was that movie? Um, who's that white girl who hosted the Oscars and no one really liked her for a long time? Oh, Anne Hathaway. No one, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and Anne Hathaway was in some princess movie where she had curly hair. Princess Diaries. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I do remember at the time, people were like, well, a well, part of it was because like curly hair was like, as part of like, oh, she was unattractive. Then she straightened her hair and she was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I do remember reading a piece at the time, like saying, well, couldn't they have gotten a curly haired actor, actress to do that? Is- and I was like, oh, um, what? Really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, but no. Um, but that's my point. Like, so. For me, like white people playing black people, that's some people's Anne Hathaway playing curly haired. No. And I don't know what to do with that. No. Because you know what? Let's listen, let's not let's not go down this road. We're already curly down hair. that road though. I know curly haired people are not living a marginally different life than straight haired people. We've got to stop that. Okay. <laughs> is that what this is about then? Is it is about marginal about- populations on screen? Yes. It's about, but I think it's about equitable access. There's no yeah. inequity for curly haired people. There is for people of color. Yeah, but that's a big issue. When we talked about this pre-taping, you were specifically concerned about like, um, like American music and American arts being appropriated by other people from other countries. Well, I go back to the proportionality. I am shocked at the disproportionality. Like, I'm just shocked. It's not so much an equity thing. Like, I don't feel like, oh, I feel, you know, it's like people are being wronged necessarily. But I, I don't understand why we cast such a disproportionality of of other Anglo, of people, white people from other Anglophone 
countries in in our movies like you know there's this Hugh Jackman coming out as Gary Hart we have you know whatever 150 million white men in this country we couldn't find like an american actor to play Gary Hart an american presidential I, candidate i'm not it doesn't bother me to the white man does that bother you no it's not like that i don't think anyone's being wronged like okay. something something's just something is strange about that like i don't understand why we have so many brits and australians uh like playing american characters it's very it's do very you know strange to me do you know why and i think this is why? particularly problematic when it's black people and black americans because what you're doing in america is you're exploiting a system that was enhanced by other systems so for example in the uk you have black actors who took advantage of whatever systems were in place within the uk to develop a career and then instead of supporting actors here you simply just pluck those actors from the uk without having to change anything about what we do in the us so it's a kind of math it's like a globalization of talent acquisition. You don't have to invest locally because you could just go pluck from another place that hasn't done the investment. Well, I think that makes sense to me. If we're talking about people of color, I think that makes sense. And I, I think, I mean, I have stronger feelings about that. Like I I am amazed at like how, if you look at hip hop now versus 20 years ago, many of the biggest names in, in hip hop, in the American hip hop scene are not American. <laughs> um, and that is like really interesting to me, or, or if they are American, they're first generation American, but they're not, they're, they're not of the like lineage um, of, of again, people who dominated hip hop 20 years ago that I, I don't fully understand. And, and I guess Trisha, what you're saying is maybe structural it is kind support. of like, structural support, the talent acquisition. But when it comes to like the white actors, <laughs> I really don't understand it. Like, I don't understand why we have Hugh Jackman and um, Russell Crowe play so many American characters. Again, I, I, it's different. I don't, I don't feel like anyone's losing opportunity as a result with, with the, with, on the black talent side of things. I think that there is an argument to be made like that, but it's very strange to me. Well, I mean, let's, let's put black into it. Daniel Kaluuya um, played that part in Widows, an American gangster. Yes. Is that, is that problematic? Did he take that role from a black American actor? I mean, it's difficult, right? Because we're talking about global marketplace. But at the same time, you have to give some room for um, homegrown talent. And there's a tension there. Um, I I believe they were really upset. There was actually a lot of conversation about Daniel Kulua in Get Out. Because they wondered what would a black American actor have brought to that space? Because that's that story. So it's both uniquely American, obviously, but we're part of the African diaspora, so we know that that isn't fully the case. Well, let me give it immediately to make you both uncomfortable. Black Panther. Yeah. There were very few African sure. actors in them. They're from Canada, they're from America, they're from Britain, they were from Australia, um, some were from Nigeria. But was that problematic? Do you know what? I didn't have a problem with it because I actually believe Black Panther is mostly a diasporic fantasy that had really good description. That's a. No, it's pre-diasporic, though, right? Well, it is, but I mean, I think... Diaspora never happened. I know, but in my in my mind, that's why it's a diasporic fantasy, right? And so in some ways, because I, I mean, have you thought, have you, if you've read, if you've even read the the, um, the sort of 
people's um the re how receptive Africans are actually to Black Panther. It's really complicated. So it really is a movie for for us, for the diasporic folk. <laughs> It's our fantasy. So I don't really have as much of a problem with that. No, but and I think that's yeah. different from like Selma or 12 Years a Slave, where you're depicting American history, mm -hmm. African-American history with African-American characters. And interestingly, many of the main characters are played by, um, you know, black people from other countries. I, I just find it strange. I don't. You know, can I can I say what else makes this connected? I think for me, and I think this is probably a challenge. You know how people talk about who is successful in the Black American community, and then when they drill down, they find that it's um, immigrants. Yes, I think it's the same challenge: is that you have immigrants come from places that have had disproportionate supports. And then they enter an American space that has not supported its own. And in lieu of supporting its own, they simply take immigrants and sub them into these places. And I don't, I don't, I don't fault immigrants for that because, hey, they're immigrants, get what you can. Mm -hmm. But part of it is because there has been a lack of institutional support for people within America. Well, I, I think there's another thing too, and this is true of, I think, all immigrant groups, is, which is people who come to this country or people who migrate to any country, I mean, they're going to be disproportionately ambitious people yep. and, and um, they're going to have a wherewithal. Some of it may be because of supports back in the country, but some of it's going to be internal wherewithal. I mean, this is the whole, uh, we, we can go in a lot of directions, but I think about how, you know, the stereotypes about like, Oh, you know, Asian people are all good at math or, you know, and like, no, like there are, you know, more than a billion people in China. There's a very small portion of that that come here, but like, that's going to be the portion that worked their asses off to get here. And so it's not surprising that there's some of the like more capable people in the society. And I, th I think the same is true of, of black immigrants. I think so too. There's a type. Oh, we need there's to actually an immigrant type. But yeah, but I think the well, I think when you introduce the black elements, as always, introducing black complicates it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about it now. I'm like, oh man, I did not devote enough time to this on this podcast. <laughs> we should have done this for both topics because I think I have a lot more that I want to say about this. But I'm going to think about it. Okay, so let's move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience, Trisha. So I finished Becoming in three days, and I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's a wonderful- Becoming by Michelle Obama. Becoming by Michelle Obama. I found the first two thirds of the book really compelling, which is actually more about her. And um, the last third is really about sort of the White House period. Surprisingly less interesting. Um, <laughs> so I just, you know what it, what it, what it, what it was good. Um, it's always nice to- find out what people think about their own story and contrast it to what you think their story is. Because I walked away from that book with a very different impression of Michelle Obama than the oh, one that interesting. Oh, now I want to read it. <laughs> you, you did well with that recommendation. Now I want to read it. I know. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really great. So, I've been listening to the audiobook, which I'm just going to steal your recommendation, Trisha, and improve upon it. <laughs> new 
need the audiobook. Why read it in your own voice when you can listen to Michelle Obama telling you her story? Fine. <laughs> God. Well, if you're going to take mine, I'm also going to give an extra bid. Jesus Christ. Spider-Man. See I've heard. I've heard Enjoy it so good. Live it. Make more movies like that forever. Shit. I need to see this today. Maybe I'll go today. Maybe I'll go I later. Actually, I actually might be going to see it today. So. Okay, oh my well, god! Go. I fully recommend you take your children. It is great for kids and great for adults. No, you know my kids saw it and they loved it. Yeah, okay. it's amazing. Let's see it after this, uh, Jason. What do you have? First of all, I just want to say I did finish Widows the book, and it was oh. very good. It's very different, but it was very good. Um, but also, and I'm going to say two things that you two. I think both saw and I'm late to the game, but I recently watched split in preparation for glass and I really liked split. And then I, and then I just saw get out for the first time. Oh oh my God. Oh my God. It was even better than I thought. I have to see it again. Like immediately. It was so good. Like I couldn't even fathom that it was going to be as good as it was. I mean, are we going to embarrass him by talking about the fact that you've just seen it? I am in shock. You just saw Get Out? It sounded so disturbing that like, I, I couldn't bring myself to watch it, but I finally did, and it was so good. Right? So good. Oh, my God. We, we, we watched it. It was late at night, and we stayed up like long after talking about it. It was just unbelievable. Chris, Chris is still over. I have questions. Chris is like, if I knew you hadn't seen it, I wouldn't How? be friends with you anymore. Okay. 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 I mean, Jason, if that's how you want to live your life, I think that's fine. Okay. I, you know, as someone who has dated, dates interracially, the fact that you have waited this long to see it, I actually take as a personal affront. <laughs> what made you think you could not see this movie? I know. And continue to date. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm, no, I'm, I know. I'm, no I, I'm good for a bit on this show, but I'm being really serious. What made you think you couldn't see that? As told, someone who dates interracially. I told you. I mean, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it hit too close to home. I just, oh. it looked and sounded so disturbing to me that I, I, every time I was like, oh, should I see this or that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like there's so much hardship in the world. I don't know if I can take seeing, spending two hours, you know, watching a movie oh, about it. That you had the choice. Anyway, we're going to take. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I have, I have one question though. Was there one thing that was like resonant for you? I was watching. I thought, you know, if. If this is a, you know, kind of allegory of race in our country, it seemed over the top. Like <laughs> there's so much racism and day to day, you know, microaggression. And here we have this like insane thing going on. But by the end, I just it seemed to me he was doing he being Jordan Peele was doing really interesting things with like double consciousness. And mm-hmm. like, I you know, I, you could see like reflections of like James Baldwin and WB Du Bois. And by the end, I was like, no, like that worked so well. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it does resonate. I mean, the fact is like, 
you know, you have these white people that like seem to genuinely admire and appreciate like blackness, but then only to exploit for their own benefit. And it resonated profoundly. I thought it was just phenomenal. I'm glad you finally saw it. Um, <laughs> you, wow. you just can't get past no, We're going to have a conversation offline about this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna talk later, but let, let me give this my recommendation and the show, and then we're going to talk. My recommendation is the most recent episode of Black Mirror, mm. which is on Netflix. Uh, if you're familiar with Black Mirror, you know it's all like these, it's like the new Twilight Zone. It's all like these horror tales that involve technology in some way, either uh, present or future. This particular one about this boy who's writing a, a young man who's writing a computer game. And the the way that it works is that it's actually a choose your own adventure movie. Like I watched it on my Xbox and at some points during the movie, you get to choose which way the story goes, right? We're all familiar with choose your own adventure. At first I was like, this is dumb. And we got through to the end of it. One of the endings I was like, okay, that was dumb. Then I was like, just out of curiosity, go back and make different choices. I will give nothing away, but I will say this, Charlie Brooker, who writes a lot of those Black Mirror episodes, sometimes he's really on and sometimes he's really off. But when he's really on, it's brilliance because I think what he's able to create, he takes something that we're already a little anxious about, technology, and he really drills in. So his stuff isn't just scary, it's disturbing. The first time I saw the movie, I didn't really understand what it was that he wanted me to understand about the plot. The second viewings, I will say I was so freaked out, I needed to stop watching because my mind started going down different pathways. And specifically, the meta of what's going on in the movie and the way that I interact with technology was really coming through. In the movie, the the main character becomes proto-aware that the choices that he's making in the course of his story, he's not making the choices and at some point in the movie, he identifies that he feels like someone's controlling him as I'm watching the movie and, and controlling his choices. When you watch the movie on the replay, that gets flipped for the viewer. And it was it, it's very interesting, and I really recommend it. That's all I'm going to say. Just watch it. Uh, and you really have to commit some time to it because you're going to want to go back and explore the other different pathways. So um, I think... I don't. I think it's called Bandersnatch, but I'm not mm-hmm. certain. If you go to Netflix, it's the newest Black Mirror that just came out. Well, they're calling it a movie, not an actual episode. So it's like a standalone. So you don't have to have it's seen it. I heard that, you know, and I watched, I saw three different endings and apparently I didn't even see them all. I'm going to have to go. I, I don't know if I want to go back and watch more. Apparently they, they filmed five and a half hours of content. No. But you can finish watching in about 90 minutes to get to an ending. But it was really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but there was five and a half hours of content. Uh, so I, I would recommend that. It's definitely a good way to spend your afternoon. And that's it. That We're done, everybody. Wasn't that fun? That was fun. It was very fun. It's always fun with you two. Until it's not. Yeah, until Jason admits that he hasn't seen Get Out. <laughs> then it's not fun, then it's, then it's deadly serious. As a matter of fact, we're going to say goodbye to you, dear listener, because I have some things to say to Jason. Uh, so. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Bye. Bye.